captivating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to the program on this Tuesday, October the 17th, 2023. So glad you're with me. It's The Kale Clark Show on and only on Relevant Radio. And you can call in right now, 888-914-9149, toll-free, 888-914-9149. Hey, we got so much to talk about today. It's the feast day of one of my favorite saints of all time. We're going to get a little iggy with it, as Will Smith might say. Pray for Will. My goodness, he's going through stuff. Saint Ignatius of Antioch. And he, he I'm telling you what, he is quite a witness to the fact that the early church was the Catholic Church, that the early church believed Catholic stuff. These aren't medieval inventions, folks. 888-914-9149. Lots of other great stuff that we're going to talk about as well. But when it comes to Ignatius of Antioch, who, who was martyred in the Roman Colosseum in 107 AD, there's a really interesting book uh, that you might want to read. If you, if you want to read about early church history in kind of a fun, creative way, Rod Bennett, who's a convert to Catholicism, wrote a book that was published by Ignatius Press, and it's called Four Witnesses. And he goes through four of the apostolic fathers of the church. He talks about Clement of Rome, one of the early popes. Ignatius of Antioch, we'll talk more about him in just a minute. St. Justin Martyr, the great St. Justin Martyr. And also Irenaeus of Lyon in Gaul, in modern-day France. He had the gall to say the Catholic Church was legit. It certainly is. And Ignatius of Antioch, this, this is an interesting thing. So Rod Bennett, in his book, he kind of, kind of makes you feel like you were there in talking about these saints. So he sets the stage of what was going on in the year 107 AD, just after the turn of the century, the second century, that is, AD. And it's really an evocative description of what the gladiator fights were like in Rome and where St. Ignatius was thrown to the wild beasts, which he, by the way, in a weird way, was kind of looking forward to. He did not want his martyrdom to be prevented. They could have tried to save him. He said, don't do it. Don't do it. I want to be ground by the, I want, by the teeth of the wild beasts and become pure bread for Christ. Wow. Well, here's what uh, Rod Bennett says, and this is going to be a, a bit of a long quote, so I apologize for this, but um, it's it's just so amazing because you realize the more things change, the more they stay exactly the same. He writes this, Today is December the 20th, A.D. 107. At least two hours before sunrise, they begin to arrive for work. The groundskeepers and the gardeners, the maintenance men and the concessionaires, the animal trainers and the acrobats. Sleepy-eyed and silent, they pass through the designated employee entrances and then clock in. However, that might have been done early in the second century, before moving to fill every corner of the enormous structure with a mounting buzz of activity. At the various street-side service docks, dozens of trucks wait in impatient lines to deliver their miscellaneous cargoes. The massive stock of goods that will be needed to supply the 50,000 or so spectators anticipated here today. Long lines soon begin to form at the public entries as well, but the gates will not open for hours. Yet, as any citizen of Rome would be quick to tell you, a good seat at the Flavian Amphitheater on a holiday is worth the wait. Yes, the Flavian Amphitheater, that fabulous sports and entertainment complex 
that will be better known in ages to come as simply the Colosseum. Before long, the sun comes up over the city, revealing a sharp azure sky and the high, thin clouds of early winter. Temperatures here in Rome today will rise perhaps into the upper 50s. A beautiful, clear day for sport and a certain guarantee of big box office. Though nearing its 30th birthday now, the Colosseum still seems new to most, and it remains the pride of the city and the admiration of the world. Situated between the Esquiline and Palatine Hills, in what used to be a swampy, abandoned fish pond, the vast edifice is a wonder of urban renewal, drawing tourism and the money that accompanies it from all over the empire. Its sheer physical beauty retains the ability to impress also. Elliptical in shape, 564 feet long, 467 feet wide, standing 157 feet high, with four distinct stories. The Colosseum's architecture has been described as faux-Egyptian, deliberately exotic and artificial, designed to startle and impress, like a Disneyland ride pavilion or a 1920s movie palace. The exterior walls, encrusted with marble and decorated with statues, are constructed of a creamy calcium carbonate material called travertine, which seems to glow a ravishing rose color from within in the light of this morning's dawn. Inside, the appointments are Greek in style and piled on for luxury. When the designated hour arrives and the gates are finally unlocked, each of the excited onlookers rushes quickly via a highly sophisticated set of ramps and staircases to one of the 60 or 80 rows of marble seats covered with comfortable cushions. I just want to interject here for just a second, and you're listening to the K.O. Clark Show. If you're just tuning in, what am I describing? I'm not describing a modern sports stadium like SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, where Monday Night Football was played last night. I'm talking about the Roman Colosseum and the sport in question, the gladiator fights, the barbarian spectacle that took place and took the life of St. Ignatius of Antioch. I don't know if you've ever been to the Colosseum, but I was there once, and it was a pretty incredible experience. Got the tour, and I got to see some of the stuff. And people don't understand how technologically advanced this was for its time. Let's continue on. This is what Rod Bennett said. This is kind of his reconstruction of the day of Ignatius' martyrdom. He talks about the crowd looking down in anticipation onto the arena. And in fact, the word arena is simply the Latin word for sand. And this broad space is covered with the very finest, trucked in, pure and white from the beaches of the Mediterranean. The grounds crews are raking and smoothing it now. It's kind of like a bunker on your favorite golf course. Taking pride in their work. At the center of the arena stands a famous and enormous statue of Jupiter, father of the gods. There is a seating chart, of course. The various levels are partitioned out according to social standing. The front row seats, field level, as it were, are reserved for senators and other VIPs. The 14 rows immediately above are set apart for other wealthy Romans and visiting foreign dignitaries. Above this is the club level, luxury boxes for the emperor himself, should he choose to attend, and the Vestal Virgins, among others. Still higher, the middle class has a large section reserved, and at the very top, the nosebleed section, that's right, there are bleacher bums in the Colosseum, there are cheap wooden seats for the poor, yes, the bleachers, where the rowdy hoi polloi will drink and holler to their heart's content. But quite a different sound begins to heard begins to be heard, however, down below in the cavernous basement spaces. 
beneath the public area, though ingeniously lit by a fantastic array of oil lamps, skylight shafts, and mirrors, this huge labyrinth of hellish service cellars still has the look and feel of a storybook dungeon. And in fact, although it does contain elaborate mechanical appliances, elevators, trapdoor systems, and drainage works of almost impossible complexity, a dungeon is exactly what it is. Everywhere within the substructure are cells and dens and holding areas for men and for beasts. Along one corridor, perhaps 70 great cats, tigers, lions, and leopards are penned individually into iron cages arranged in double rows. Their last meal has been nearly three days ago now. In preparation for today's show, a team of experienced handlers walks methodically down the corridor, stopping at each cage to poke and goad and even injure each captive beast into a state of frenzy. Carefully evading the grasping talons that swipe at them from between the bars, they work until satisfied and then move on. In another part of the basement, elephants are being dressed in costume armor, in readiness for a routine based on Hannibal's crossing of the Alps. But mainly there are cell blocks full of captive humans, foreigners for the most part, disobedient slaves, prisoners of war, with a few domestic criminals mixed in too. Knowing the part that they will play in today's entertainment, these are also worked up into their own brand of frenzy. Some prayed loudly with tears and outstretched arms to whatever heathen and barbaric deity out of Africa or Germany or the East seems most likely to deliver. Others, less religious, curse and threaten and rage, fighting among themselves. Many sit alone, shivering and weeping, thinking about home and mother. And he kind of ends it off by saying this, what happens here at the Colosseum is, of course, well known to everyone. Horrible, horrible scenes will be played out within these walls today. The Romans expect them and would be disappointed if they failed to materialize. It would, however, be an important mistake to say that this jaded generation has become hardened to the shock of violence. No, indeed, that shock is precisely what they are after, what they have paid to experience. The whole reason for their coming out today, like the rollicking, squealing crowds at the newest gory horror movie, like the long lines of vacationers queuing up for the latest and scariest roller coaster, the Romans want to be shocked. They want to dare themselves to look, challenge themselves not to throw up, laugh and hoot and cover their eyes and then go safely home with the warm satisfaction of having survived the ordeal. Yes, this is exactly what they want and what they expect, end of quote. Wow, that is an evocative a description of the Colosseum at the turn of the century to the second century A.D. And this is where Ignatius of Antioch was martyred. He was thrown to the wild beasts. And we'll talk about his final moments in just a, in just a minute. But I always thought it was really amazing. And again, I don't know if you've had a chance to tour the Colosseum in Rome, but it was, it was pretty amazing to think that this really freaked me out. And I, I read about this, and it's actually true. You know, the Romans, as part of their gladiator fights, not only would they have the fights that you, you've seen in movies like Gladiator, one of the great movies of all time, featuring Russell Crowe, best picture directed by Ridley Scott, you know the one. They're making Gladiator 2, by the way. I think this is, this is probably going to be a mistake. It's, I don't know. This just doesn't smell like it's going to be a good one. But uh, the actual Coliseum, one of the things that they would do as part of the fights would be they would actually flood the floor, the arena of the Coliseum, and they'd have these naval battles. It's, it's incredible. They'd have these, 
these ships, you know, floated out there, and they'd have sort of this mock battle between a, a Roman ship and a and an enemy ship, and of course, all the the, the slaves and and those destined to die, the prisoners would be the, on the enemy ship, and they they just get killed. They'd shoot cannons. I mean, it would just be brutal. You know, they'd storm the ship like pirates of the Caribbean, and this was real stuff. It's amazing that they were able to do it, and then they drain it out. It was very engineered, but this is incredible technology for its time. And so the ancients, I'm telling you, the ancients were not dummies. They, they, if some, if somebody had had actually done an honest to goodness miracle like Jesus of Nazareth, they would have been able to tell the the genuine article from a fake. They, they're still, I mean, the, the aqueducts, everything that they did, th- these guys were, they were sharp. They were sharp. We, we still think about the Egyptian pyramids. We're still not quite sure how they built those without hydraulics, but. Um, so they, they, they would know. They would know. That's, that's all I'm saying about that. And Ignatius of Antioch, man, I'm telling you, when you, when you read his letters, and, and he was, by the way, he was the second bishop of Antioch after St. Peter himself. You're listening to the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 His martyrdom, and, and also the letters that he wrote on his way to his martyrdom, they helped to verify for us the truth of the Catholic faith, that the early church was indeed the Catholic church. One of the things that, and I ran into this a lot during my time outside of the church when I was in, in the Protestant world before I came back in, there, there's always this idea that we need to recapture the purity of the early church. And, and to some extent that fueled uh, the Reformation, Martin Luther, and, and all those who followed him, it's this idea that there have been so many like, barnacles on a ship, all these these non-essential items, traditions, teachings that have attached itself to the, the bark of Peter, to the ship of the church, as it were, as it moved through the seas of time. And we need to get rid of those things. We need to get back to what the early Christians believed in all their purity. But here you have a guy in Ignatius of Antioch, who knew exactly what the early church, church believed, because he was taught by the Apostle John himself. Uh, by the way, there's also a, 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 a tradition about Ignatius of Antioch. I don't think this is necessarily historical, but it is said that he was one of the kids that Jesus took up in his arms when he, when he blessed the children, and he kind of you know bounced them on his knee. Is that true? I don't know about that, but we do know this that the first place that the believers were called Christians was in a place called Antioch. And Peter was in Antioch before he went to Rome. Now, he eventually went to Rome, of course, and was martyred there. But he was in Antioch, and obviously he's, he's, he's the first pope. So I guess he could say the papacy was in Antioch for a while, just like for a weird time in church history. It was in Avignon, France for a little while as well. And then Catherine of Siena said to the pope, what are you doing? you got to get back to Rome. And he's like, yeah, you're right. Um so there's there's Peter in Antioch, and then there's another guy after him called Evodius, and then there was Ignatius. But Ignatius was actually a disciple of John the Apostle, and when he was a young man, he would listen to John. He would listen to John, and another guy was there too, by the way, who also became a martyr. He was a lot younger than Ignatius, Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. So we're going to get into what Ignatius actually said about the Catholic Church. And by the way, he's the first guy to use that term, the Catholic Church. We'll tell you about it after the break. It's the Kale Clark Show, 888 A little gladiator music for you on the way out.
This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Uh, that's a cool tune by The Killers, The Man. You know who was really the man? St. Ignatius of Antioch. It's his feast day today. And you're listening to The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. And when we're doing apologetics, when we're explaining the faith, when we're defending the faith, I'm telling you, St. Ignatius is absolutely crucial for us. Crucial. Now, when, you, when, you're, uh, when you're listening to the... Um, <laughs> that was kind of abrupt. <laughs> the, uh, when, you, when, you, when you read his writings, uh, and, and he's one of the apostolic fathers, and my friend Carl Keating, who um, founded Catholic Answers, he always says that the early church fathers are the most dangerous men in all of Christianity because they show the Catholicism of the early church. Hey, if you want that old-time religion, like the old hymn, yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard that one. If you want that old-time religion, you got to go back to old times. You really have to go back to old times. Now, Ignatius of Antioch lived from the year 8035 around to about uh, 107 AD when he was martyred. And by the way, we, we know some other stuff about his martyrdom from a, from a document called The Martyrdom of Ignatius. Now, some question whether this is really historical or not. There's this conversation that happens between him and the Emperor Trajan. Um, I think there's a historical core to it, but it's probably been embellished over time. But one thing we know is legit for sure are the letters that Ignatius wrote on the way to his martyrdom. Um, he wrote seven letters to seven well, he actually wrote six letters to churches, and then he wrote one letter to a friend, and that was Polycarp, St. Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna. And uh, Smyrna is one of the churches that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, by the way, as well, in Asia Minor. And uh, Polycarp also became a martyr. There's the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's, a, it's an important early church document as well. And Polycarp was um, uh, burned at the stake. Um, it was a dramatic martyrdom as well. You can read about that. So, so Ignatius of Antioch wrote seven letters, one to the Ephesians, one to the Magnesians. They, were, they had a lot of magnesium there, up on their vitamins. The Trallians, the Romans, church at Rome. The Philadelphians, of course, the church at Philadelphia, also mentioned in the book of Revelation. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, of course. And uh, my condolences to the Eagles fans. Lost to the Jets. Um, the Smyrnians, that's where Polycarp was. And, of course, he also wrote a letter to Polycarp. Now, it, it was a really kind of an odd situation because Ignatius was, usually if you're going to send a prisoner to Rome for execution, you just put him on a boat and send him from the port of Antioch to straight to Rome and just be over and done with it. But I think what was going on there was the soldiers had some other business, some other official business that they were attending to, and they just said, let's just bring him with us. And so he was treated pretty badly in some ways, and, and, and also he had a lot of privileges in another way because he was chained to these Roman soldiers. And in his letters, Ignatius calls them the Ten Leopards because they were very cruel to him. But they also allowed him to meet with local churches at their various stops. Uh, they stopped in all these cities on the way to Rome, and he was able to get letters into the hands of the believers. They would come and see him, uh, get a blessing from him, and be able to talk with him and pray pray with him in some of the spots. And then he would he would kind of send them on. And, and in his writings, they're super invaluable for us because, again, he was 
the second bishop of Antioch after Peter. He knew personally and was taught by the Apostle John. So what I think he had a pretty good idea of what the early Christians believed, the earliest Christians, the apostles. And this is what he says in his letter to Smyrna in chapter 8. The Smyrna letter is really, really important. He talks about the, the bishop. So if you want to be part of the church that was founded by Jesus Christ, you have to be at least part of a church that has real bishops. Because this is what he talks about. He says, see that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the father. And the presbyters, now who are the presbyters? They're the priests. That's, presbyter is just another word for priest. Um, the pre, follow the presbyters, it's a Greek word, as you would the apostles, and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. So it's really interesting. So right away, we've got bishops, priests, and deacons. Bishops, presbyters, priests, and deacons. And any English dictionary will tell you that priest is a shortened form of uh, presbyter. So the three degrees of holy orders are right there. Uh, right at the beginning. This isn't invented later on by the church, millennia later, or even hundreds of years later. It's not the case. It was there from the beginning. So a lot of the, a lot of non-Catholic Christian groups, they don't have such things. They don't have bishops. They don't have priests. They don't have deacons. Well, the apostolic church did. So how can you really call yourself? There's all these churches that call themselves the apostolic church of so-and-so. Well, how can you really claim to be apostolic if you don't have this stuff? Ignatius goes on to say this. He says, quote, Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist. So you got to have a Eucharist as well, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. And that's from his letter to the Smyrnians, chapter 8. So he talks about the Eucharist, and he says it's valid if the bishop administers it or somebody who he's entrusted. And that's why we have priests, because the bishop can't be everywhere at once, so he ordains priests and and shares with them some of his powers. And so he says a valid Eucharist is done by the bishop or one to whom the bishop has entrusted it, i.e. the priests. Wherever the bishop shall appear, let the people be, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. And by the way, that's the first time in writing anybody ever said catholic church now of course he doesn't explain it he just kind of says it they know what he's talking about this term had been in use before he wrote this down in 107 a.d so it's definitely probably coming from the first century and that's important because the catholic church you had to differentiate the church that jesus founded the catholic church from all of the other groups that were out there even in ignatius's time uh, in fact, there was a there was a, a docetist heresy. You know, these guys were like basically they're running like a parallel organization to the Catholic Church. If you looked at it, you might even think they were Catholic. They kind of they had bishops, quote unquote, that dressed like bishops. A lot of Ignatius's congregation, their wives, their friends, they would be in this alternate universe, if you will, of the docetist congregation. And basically, they just didn't believe that Jesus was incarnate. They had a real problem with that. They just thought he only appeared to be human. And there's a lot of theological issues with this. And, and of course, Ignatius was having nothing of this. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John. And if you read John's Gospel, John is so big on the Incarnation that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. So important. And then in his letter, in, in, in one of his letters, I think it's First John, 
He says, that which our hands have touched, we, we've looked at this guy, we've touched this guy, Jesus, the word of life. He's a real person. He's a real guy. He's resurrected from the dead. This is not some sort of a phantasm or, or a mirage. He didn't just seem to be human. He really was human, the incarnation. And, and they would use this, this sort of heretical group would use this kind of out so they could kind of fit in with Roman society. They could sacrifice to the Roman gods. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Not the case uh, for members of the Catholic Church. So there always have been false teachings. There always have been other groups who say, we're doing it right. Uh, don't listen to the Catholics. But the Catholic Church is the one founded by Jesus Christ with bishops in the line of apostolic succession. So he talks about this in, in his letter to the Ephesians, more about the bishops. He says that, uh, let us be careful then not to, to set ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. And he talks in particular about the Roman church. And it's interesting because in his letter to the Romans, and by the way, speaking of letters to the Romans, tomorrow on The Faith Explained, we're going to start a brand new series. It's St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, but I've been kind of scared to do it. I mean, I, I don't feel up to the task. Maybe you don't either. Maybe you've read Romans and said, man, there's some confusing stuff here. It's actually not that bad. What we're going to break it down for you, Paul is incredibly deep here. And it's really the Mount Everest of New Testament letters. It's maybe the most important thing that Paul ever wrote. And uh, it's going to be a tough climb, but the views will be well worth it. Trust me, you're going to want to go on this journey as we tackle the letter to the Romans starting tomorrow on The Faith Explained, 1230 Central. So tell your friends about it. Spread the news. And so when Ignatius, he also wrote a letter to the Romans. And it's interesting, he was martyred in Rome, just like Peter and Paul were. And the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so he, when he wrote to the Romans, he says that the Roman church holds the presidency in the place of the country of the Romans. It's interesting. He says, you guys are, you're like the president of all the other churches. And, and he just has all these all this florid language towards the Roman church. He says, you're worthy of God. You're worthy of honor, worthy of blessing, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of sanctification, because you hold the presidency of love named after Christ, named after the father here. Therefore do I salute in the name of Jesus Christ, the son of the father. So he, he just kind of, he doesn't talk like this about any of the other churches that he's writing to, that they hold the presidency in love and the authority to teach the other churches. It's interesting because in chapter three of his letter to the Romans, he writes this, Ignatius of Antioch, he says, you have envied no one, but others you have taught. In other words, the Roman church has taught other churches. I desire only that what you have enjoined in your instruction may remain in force. It's interesting. So uh, just one more thing. We, there's so many things that we could say about Ignatius and, and the early church, but the the Eucharist, the doctrine of the Eucharist, you can call in right now, by the way, it's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. We're getting ready, of course, for the National Eucharistic Congress next year. It's going to be a very, very important event. You can learn more about it on the Relevant Radio website and also get Father Rocky's Eucharistic Encounter videos. Don't miss those, relevantradio.com slash encounter. You can find out how to get to the, to the, um, to the Congress and also... And also, prepare yourself with Father's videos. Don't miss out on those. But Ignatius of Antioch talked about the reality of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus in the Eucharist. Here's what he says in his letter to the Smyrna, Smyrnians. 
in uh, chapter 6. And this is really important because, again, his mentor was the Apostle John. So remember, John chapter 6 in his, John's Gospel talks about the Eucharist. And then Smyrnians chapter 6, the letter to Smyrna chapter 6, Ignatius of, of Antioch, two chapter 6s. Always a, a good uh, memory device there. This is what he says. He says, Ignatius says, take note of those who hold heterodox opinions, basically heretical opinions, false teachings. Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again, they who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. End of quote. Well, that, that's a pretty incredible... Um, that's a pretty incredible passage from, from Ignatius because he basically says that the false teachers, those guys who have left the church, maybe they became docetists, they joined this parallel universe, you know, this anti-church over here. One of the reasons why they left is because they don't believe that the Eucharist really is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says it's the same flesh that suffered on the cross. Flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. Those who deny the gift of God are perishing their disputes. Why not just take the gift? You're missing out. But it's interesting because the Eucharistic realism of this passage, and that's exactly what Jesus himself said in John's Gospel. In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And then he tells us what the bread is. Is it a symbol? No. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John six fifty one. He says the Eucharist will be his flesh under the appearances, of course, of bread and wine. So right here we have Eucharistic realism in uh, Ignatius of Antioch. And so this is just absolutely powerful because when you actually read what the early church fathers said, they believed Catholic stuff like the Eucharist. This isn't, again, something that was invented later on, many centuries later, millennia later. No, no, this was always part of the apostolic deposit of faith. And again, don't, don't forget, who wrote John chapter 6? The Apostle John. Who was the teacher of Ignatius? The Apostle John. So I think he had a pretty good idea of what Jesus meant by this. And so we can we can really trust it. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show, triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. All right, let's go to let's go to Dee Dee, our friend Dee Dee in Phoenix on line one. Hi, Dee Dee. Uh, hi, hi. How are you? Are you still are you still cutie? Am I still what? <laughs> cutie. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I heard about I, your bond experience. Oh. Okay. Well, you know, my wife still thinks I'm cute. That's all that matters. But in all seriousness, uh, my father uh, was army. I I come from military uh, military family, and in World War II, there are classic pictures of Catholic priests standing on on army. uh, uh, I don't. What do you call those things? Jeep or something or. Yeah, like a Jeep. Mm-hmm. Classic, classic. And, yeah. and, 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 
and they're and, and they're and they're saying, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, like the celebrating mass on like a, on on a jeep or something like that. Father Emil Capuan. Uh, um, we've talked about him uh, recently. A great great uh, American priest and um, and war hero. Yeah, that sort of thing. Is that what you mean? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, so if there is a war, and I hope it doesn't mm-hmm. happen, mm-hmm. so what's going to happen uh, to all these young uh, po- uh, priests? And I don't know what the situation in terms of how many Catholic priests there are that are young. Uh, are priests exempt? If, if we go to war in the United States, are priests exempt, young men, uh, from the draft? Or do they uh, end up being well, chaplains? Is, is there a Catholic chaplain department? The, there, there are. Yeah, there, there are. Cha- there are armed forces chaplains, and uh, there's a, there's a bishop in the armed forces as well. Kind of oversees all of that, DD. And and in terms of can priests be drafted? That 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 is a question I actually don't know the answer to. Maybe a uh, our crack researcher Patrick uh, Ala could, could uh, quickly Google that and find out. But I, I would say that. They pro- my my guess is that they would be exempted from the draft because of their status as religious ministers, as as priests. I, now they could obviously volunteer if that would be the case, and if their bishop gives them permission, their local ordinary, it's possible. And I'm sure that many priests did volunteer in, in uh, for example, for service in the Korean War, like Father Emil, World War II, that sort of thing. But let's certainly pray that, that that's not the case and that, that that won't be the case although the way things are going right now um one could be forgiven for having those thoughts and those worries and, and yes priests are exempted yeah that's that's what i thought was probably going to be the case there so yeah i appreciate that uh question Didi, and uh i'll tell you this it, it's interesting thinking about all that's going on the war uh that's unfolding in the middle east the war in ukraine and as you know uh one of the things that we can be doing today, and we can uh, pray more about this uh, later tonight on the Family Rosary Across America, uh, the theme of fasting and praying uh, for an end to war and invoking uh, Our Lady Queen of Peace uh, in these conflicts uh, is something that we really, really need to do. And Cardinal Pizzabala, and I know the irony of this, has declared a fast uh, and has asked uh, Catholics and other people of goodwill all around the world to pray for peace in the Holy Land, and we should certainly uh, try to do that. Try to make some sort of a small spiritual sacrifice, at least, uh, on that front, and do what we can do. We got to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, but we will be right back after this. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Explaining the faith so you can explain it to others. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Hey, welcome back to the program. It's the feast day of St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I just got done sharing with you just some of the things in his letters that once again verified to us that the early church was the Catholic Church. He's, he's a very, very important witness, of course, being a disciple, being taught the faith by the Apostle John himself, uh, the second bishop of Antioch after St. Peter himself, and uh, thrown to the wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum in 107 AD. Uh, what an incredible witness and martyr he is. And I just want to, I, I shared with you the incredible scene that unfolded 
at the Coliseum on the day of his martyrdom. And if you missed that uh, at the top of the show, check the podcast on the Relevant Radio app afterwards. Uh, Rod Bennett, in his book, Four Witnesses, just does such a great job of uh, storytelling, if you will, uh, explaining the glory of the Coliseum. It's like, forget about AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Jerry's World. Forget about SoFi in Los Angeles. This was a, a marvel of its time as a stadium and engineering accomplishment uh, for the ages. They had indoor plumbing in, in the Coliseum. How about that? Uh, they didn't have that again until much, much later. After the barbarians invaded, it took a long time for even indoor plumbing to come back into civilization. So the Romans were really way ahead of their, of their time. So let me flip ahead here. In, in, uh, in Bennett's book, Four Witnesses, he talks about the, the last moments of Ignatius of Antioch as he kind of imagines them happening. And in, uh, and in this martyrdom of Ignatius, this document, it's one of the first documents about the martyrdom of a saint uh, in the early church. And again, it probably was, that one was probably doctored over time and maybe embellished a little bit. But it does talk about Ignatius of Antioch being led into the amphitheater. And Rod Bennett says that, quote, the last scheduled events of the day have now played themselves out, leaving the formerly white sands of the arena Looking like Omaha Beach, the howling drunken mob cries out in an agony of bloodlust, a lust that has not grown a notch less furious for being thoroughly sated. A contemporary pagan author captured the flavor of these frenzies in a guilty account of one of his own visits to the Colosseum. So here's a quote from a pagan writer. Some of you will know who it is, but here's what he said about his visits to the Colosseum and all the the blood sport that took place there. You're listening to the Kale Clark show. Call in triple eight, nine, one, four, nine, one, four, nine, eight, 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 nine, one, four, nine, one, four, nine. So this ancient writer said this quote, when one man fell, another would immediately take his place. And this went on and on until none were left. And even the last was killed. You may say, but that one committed a robbery. Of course, a lot of these guys were prisoners and criminals. So What? Does he deserve to be crucified? He committed a murder. Even so, does he deserve to die like this? What sort of punishment do you deserve for watching him die? All day long, the crowd cries, Kill him, flog him, burn him. Why does he run onto the sword so timidly? Why is he so unwilling to die? End of quote. So who was this pagan writer? It was Seneca. It was Seneca. You might have heard of Seneca. He was a, a friend... <laughs> sort of a friend of, of the mad emperor Nero, and uh, that was from his Letters of a Stoic. At any rate, uh, Rod Bennett says this is really the death throes of paganism. It's really Roman civilization having played itself out. He says, quote, every ounce of Roman anger, Roman despair, Roman helplessness pours out upon her chosen scapegoats. And still, Rome is filled with terror and self-loathing. Then comes the word that there is to be an encore tonight, a curtain call, so to speak. It spreads by word of mouth in waves across the surface of the vast throng, and the word is met with a mighty cheer. Ignatius is here, and without a moment to spare, Ignatius the Christian, the spreader and fomenter of Christianity, Ignatius who reproaches us, oh, not with words always, but who continually reproaches us for our adulteries, for our lies, for our hypocrisies, for our fourth and fifth wives, for all the hideous and human things we do to shut out that still, small 
voice, Ignatius, who claims that he carries God within his breast, when everyone knows that God is just somebody's stupid opinion, like all of our stupid, hopeless opinions. He must die. He must die today like his predecessors who burned the city. Again, that's a reference to Nero probably set the fire that burned Rome, but he blamed it on the Christians and persecuted them. He must die today like his co-conspirator, his co-conspirator Peter, like the miserable naked Jew who started the whole filthy business in the first place. Ignatius must die because like them, he tells us the truth. End of quote. And then he talks about Ignatius being led out into the amphitheater at the Colosseum. The gentleman drops to one knee, then both knees. A scarred wooden slab is slowly raised. From behind it, two tawny female lions bloodstain themselves from their own torments at the hands of their keepers, bound swiftly into the arena. They take only a moment to orient themselves before racing purposely, purposefully across the open expanse, kicking up great plumes of the blood-stained sand as they go. The mob makes no sound. Every eye is transfixed, every ear alert. Ignatius bows his head, clasps his fists together in prayer, and waits calmly for God's good pleasure. And then finally, victory at last. He had said in one of his letters, his letter to the Romans, Ignatius had said, I am God's wheat, and I am going to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts to make a pure loaf for Christ. So after after he was mauled by these animals and killed, uh, his bones were taken back to Antioch and wrapped in linen. And in fact, um, St. John Chrysostom, the great preacher of the early church, preached a, a eulogy for him much, much later, around the year 400, 399 A.D., and those bones were there. Um, Wow, an incredible testimony, the martyrdom of St. Ignatius of Antioch. And it's powerful. It's powerful. You're listening to The Cale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. All right, let's go to Michael in Austin, Texas. Hello, Michael. Michael, are you there? Okay, okay, Michael might have dropped. We'll, we'll try to get back to you, Michael. Let's go to Letitia in Northern California. Hi, Letitia. Hi, Claire. Hi, how are you? Uh, yes, I'm doing fine, thank you. Yeah, I want to get an advice from sure. you. About, I have a daughter that she's 18 years old, and she um, she wants to know why we pray to people that is dead. That's what she she um, asked me this question, like the like the um, uh, saints mm. that you know they already long time ago they passed away. Why is yeah. the reason that we? Pray? Yeah, that that's, that's a very good question, Letitia. And uh, you can tell tell your daughter this that well. First of all, we we have this way of talking and speaking in the Catholic Church when we say, "Oh, we're praying to the saints." Some people obviously have a huge problem with this. Oh, we can only pray to God. That, that's obviously true. Uh, it's more semantics. It's the way that we talk. We're not praying to them as we pray to God. We're actually praying through them. <laughs> uh, we're asking for their intercession. We're essentially asking them to pray for us in, in heaven. But the, the way that we talk, it, it's easy to see why why uh, non-Catholic Christians sometimes... Uh, Ooh, that, that kind of raises their, their eyebrows a little bit when we speak like this, and maybe we should be more exact when we describe it. But uh, this idea that they're dead, um, 
That's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. I used to be involved uh, a few years ago with a youth ministry that uh, got started in the U.S. And I met the guy who founded it, great guy, Eddie Cotter Jr. It's called the Dead Theologian Society. I don't know if you remember the movie Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams, classic. And that's, he was watching that movie, and he kind of got the idea for this. And it was a, a youth program that focused on the lives of the saints and how they can encourage young people today. And so the, the joke about the, the Dead Theologian Society is that they're not dead. They're actually more alive than we are. Uh, yeah, they're dead to the world, but alive in Christ forever. And so if you read the letter to the Hebrews, for example, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. You know, talking about Ignatius and, and the great Roman Colosseum, the, the greatest stadium of, it, of his day. Uh, and there were fans there cheering for his death, the bloodlust. But Hebrews almost describes heaven like a great stadium filled with the saints, and they're, they're kind of cheering us on in the arena of life. You know, you, we are the man in the arena, the, the, as Theodore Roosevelt wrote about. The man in the arena, the woman in the arena, the, the child in the arena, like we're fighting it out. Uh, on the battlefield of life here, um, not on the sand of the Colosseum, but they're, and they're encouraging us. They're praying for us. They're cheering us on. They're aware of our struggles somehow, and we can ask for their prayers and their intercession uh, because they are with God uh, in heaven. They're they're far more alive than we are, and they await the resurrection of the body, and uh, we hope to join their ranks one day. So, so that that that's it. They're, they they have died according to the body, but uh, their souls are forever with God in heaven and so that's why we do it and by the way i want to also say this tomorrow on the faith explained not only we're going to be starting a new series on saint paul's letter to the romans but there is in our q a mailbag a question i'm going to answer tomorrow about uh mediums consulting mediums Uh, i got a heartbreaking email from uh, a mother of a a 10 year old son with special needs who passed away she misses him terribly and she found this mother's group where they're they're consulting mediums and trying to get in touch with uh, their children who have passed on, and, and this is not, not the way to go. This is uh, not appropriate for Catholics at all, so we'll talk about that. Uh, sometimes we as Catholics get accused of, when we talk about the intercession of the, of the saints, of the sin of necromancy. And in the Old Testament, that was a, a major no-no, trying to consult the spirits of the dead. That's not what we do when it comes to the intercession of the saints. That's not what we're doing at all. So I'll explain the difference tomorrow on the faith explained 1230 central. So that's another question, kind of a related question that the people have about that. All right. I think we got Michael back on the line. Let's go to Michael in Austin, Texas. Hey, Michael. Hey, Kale. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for calling in, sir. Thanks. Uh, I wanted to help you answer the question from the earlier caller about drafting priests. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on the draft, but I, I was in the Army. Actually, I've been in the Army since uh, the 70s. And, um, of course, they're in the draft now. And if it were to be brought back into practice, they would probably write new rules. Hmm. But uh, my understanding is most men are 28 or 30 or older when they're ordained. Mm-hmm. It takes that long to get through seminary. Yeah, good point. And the draft is uh, traditionally, you know, during my lifetime at least, it was uh, 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 21-year-olds. And uh, by the time you got to be 25, you had passed out of the window for possible draft. Mm. So what I'm saying is uh, it, the, the chances that priests would be drafted in anything other than a total war are slim. 
uh, very slim. And if they were to be drafted, uh, unless, you know, we're on the verge of uh, (laughs) a total annihilation, um, any professional, uh, which would include doctors and and lawyers and priests, are not assigned into infantry units. They're Mm -hmm. assigned in their professional roles in in the Army or the military. So, uh, yeah, I I think it's uh, something that um, people shouldn't be worried about. Yeah, that's a great point. Hey, Michael, first of all, thank thank you for the phone call. Great phone call. We always get such such great calls from Austin. It's such a great, great city for us. Um, and thank you for your service as well. And uh, I, I believe you're a retired soldier, and uh, thank you so much uh, for your service to the United States. And it's also true, yeah, priests in the military, they generally do not bear arms. As, as Michael said, they would not be in an infantry unit or anything like that. Um, in the Canadian military, they're prohibited from from carrying any weapon whatsoever, and I'm sure that's the case in in most uh, when it comes to most um, uh, chaplains, uh, priest chaplains, if you will, all around the world. And so, yeah, it's very slim. Yeah, we had a question earlier in the show: Could priests be drafted in in a global war? Um, not the case. They're past the age, as Michael said, and if they if they did enter the army, it would be in their capacity as priests. And um, they would be needed. They would be needed. And um, hey, as they always say, there's no atheist in a foxhole, right? And and uh, I've had relatives who served overseas, and they always tell me, man, the craziest conversations happen uh, in the military when you're when you're when you're there when you're in the middle of it. I'm telling you, people ask deep, deep existential questions, and we should be asking those existential questions all the time. And sometimes we get lulled into a sense of sleep, if you will. Uh, and and um, I think one of the they're great tragedies, but some of these great world events that are taking place um, can wake a lot of people up and, and make them ask these deeper questions about good and evil, the meaning of life uh, and death, uh, especially when it's uh, something that we face, we see all the time before us. All right, so that we'll talk more about that fast for peace in the Holy Land on the Family Rosary across America with Father Rocky. Thanks for listening to the Kale Clark Show. Jim produced. Patrick took your phone calls. Assist from Miranda on the producing. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.